to um, stop by the visitor table if you were too scared to raise your If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 17. And uh, we're going to be looking this week and next at a, a very fun passage. And you'll see why as we get into it. The last uh, last several weeks, I've been reading through the book of Revelation just in my... I kind of, I'm kind of the systematic way of reading my Bible. But anyways, on certain days, I read the book of Revelation. I've been reading it very slowly and very carefully. It's a pretty scary book. Um, you may not be able to figure out all the beasts in there and creatures and weird things. But one thing is certain, the tribulation is going to be a bad time. And uh, that message comes through loud and clear. And at the end of the book, it's great when Jesus comes back. And uh, that's why it is called the revelation, the revealing of Jesus or the apocalypse, which is another way of saying that same thing. The tribulation is that seven-year period of time preceding the second coming of Christ when Jesus then establishes his kingdom here on earth. That kingdom then lasts a thousand years and goes on after that into eternity. As uh, God begins to work to bring the Jews to repentance, he also brings judgment upon the earth. And uh, the earth begins to reel and then the economies are shook and they begin to look to... uh, a single man who is the Antichrist, who is going to help them uh, be the the uh, kind of the Messiah, the Savior. But he receives a wound, a mortal wound, so as to speak, in his head. And, and uh, amazingly, he comes to life again, almost like a resurrection. He then, uh, halfway through the tribulation, kind of shows his true colors. He begins to persecute the false church and true believers. He begins to exalt himself above uh, every other god. And he uh, really uh, is empowered by Satan. He has a, a false prophet who helps him. He does signs and wonders to deceive people. And uh, this uh, individual is referred to as the beast. As uh, the... The tribulation progresses, especially that three and a half years, the judgments God sends upon the earth begin to escalate and increase in intensity. And you just have to read through the book of Revelation to just see how massive it is and how uh, how catastrophic and then what happens is, is when things just get to the very worst place and many the Jews are held up in Jerusalem and it just seems that um, everything's going to come to an end. Then Jesus returns and uh, he slays all the wicked. Instantaneously, they're dealt with. And then he begins to establish his kingdom on earth. And so this is uh, something I remember studying as a, a young believer. I remember it was uh, I was trying to figure this out. I think it's almost 30 years ago. It's pretty scary. Um but I was I remember, you know, reading out this. It was kind of cool to, you know, read stuff about prophecy. And, you know, granted, there are those people who kind of, you know, try to, you know, read the newspaper and fit the Bible into it. And, you know, that was kind of always whatever. There, there was people who talked about, you know, that someday we might have a cashless society. And, um, you know, people would eventually get rid of their credit cards. And, and that, you know, everybody would have a computer. Uh, computers at that time, you know, needed a room about this size. You're going, sure, sure, everybody's going to have a computer. And that somehow the whole world would be interconnected by computers. Can you believe that? 
How ridiculous. And so these are the kinds of things that people were talking about, that, that they're going to have technology where they can put some little little marker or strip or chip in your, in your right hand or your forehead, and that'll have all the information about you. And, oh, it sounded so far-fetched. I mean, who could ever imagine such science fiction? However, we all know that the world is all connected now by computers. I mean, some of the cell phones are becoming more and more computers in and of themselves. Um, you know, they, there's more power in your average little PDA than they did in one of those giant computers that fit in a room like this before. And uh, so things have changed. They have developed FDA-approved chips for people. Uh, you can get on the Internet and do computer chips, uh, implantations, and they're putting them in pets uh, very widely now, just in a few people. Uh, they're putting them in like Alzheimer's patients, you know, who kind of wander away. And when they get there, they don't know where they're at. They don't know where they came from or who they are. And so it's good to have a chip in them so we can, like, you know, find out who they are. And of course, you know, they can't take it off because it's embedded in them. So there are some very practical purposes. We know that we're working towards a cashless society. We've seen the success of the euro and how the euro is certainly uh, a success because it, it pools the resources and it stabilizes the economy in a lar- at a larger scale. The World Wide Web is in place, um, and, uh, you know, we can just see it all happening. The stage is pretty much set, and, and, and you can understand the rationale for, for, for basically getting rid of your wallet. I mean, why carry all those things? You go into a store, and uh, we know that all the information about us is already there, and the stores have certain access to certain information, and, and so they, we just you scan. If you don't have a hand, you can always put your head. Not too many people going around without a head. Um, you scan you know, your hand, and all of a sudden, the monitor that uh, the cashier is looking at up pops your picture. She can see if you're you, you know, if you haven't borrowed somebody's hand. And... Um, she can say, well, you know, will it be, you know, debit or credit? And you say, well, credit. And she'll say, which of your cards do you want? Do you want your Chase or your, you know, United Mileage Plus or your whatever? And then you, she hits the button and it's done. Oh, no paperwork. It just happens. The, the technology is already in place. We're moving in that direction. There's no doubt we're moving in that direction. And so it's not science fiction at all. You can imagine being, uh, you know, uh, walking into a bank, walking into a mall, and, and you, you get scanned. And scanners are being built right now by the truckloads. They're being sold by the truckloads so that people can have them. And then what happens is every time you go into a place, they know you went into that place. They know when you came out. People can track you. People can pattern you. People can find you. If you're a criminal and you have a marker, then you can't go anywhere. And if you do, they go, there he is, go get him. So you can see how this would be a safe thing, a convenient thing to have that. You walk, uh, you know, along and people are getting information from you at all times. It's already happening. I mean, people rob information from people's cell phones and passports because they have chips in them. Cars have chips in them. You know, a lot of the new cars have chips in them, right? You know that when you're driving around, they actually can get information from your car and say, well, they were here, here, and here because you have a new car. Computers have it in them. You bet. And so it's a very common thing, you know, if you were to get pulled over by a police officer for just hypothetically speaking, um, 
for speaking, speeding or something. Uh, I remember one time I was coming to the office here and I got pulled over right in front of the church. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it's like, oh no, what did I do wrong? And uh, I had a gray suit on and he didn't see my gray um, safe seatbelt strap on. He came over and said, have you been wearing that seatbelt strap? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, you can go. I was like, good, good. Let me out of here, you know, before somebody sees me. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's that that the, the police officer could look at you and um, scan you and say, OK, oh, I see you've been at a bar. I can see you're, you've got a criminal record. I can see all this information instantaneously. They have it. This is getting to be a reality more and more so every day. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 and 17 reads, And he, this is the Antichrist, causes all the small and great, rich and poor, free men and slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. I don't know if they'll use the exact technology now. Those little implants are about the size of a grain of rice. 30 years ago, people were guessing how one man could possibly get control of the earth. But now computers are running the world. Tracking strips are used in a lot of different applications. And you know, you think, well, you know, could you conceive of one evil person getting control of the information about you? In a world like today, somebody's got the information, right? It's stored somewhere for someone's access. And so the world stage is set for the returning of Jesus Christ in great glory. As we look at our text today, that's kind of what it's about. If you look at uh, Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus had been heading for Jerusalem Encountered some persecution, went back north a little bit to the border of Samaria and Galilee. There he healed the ten lepers. We don't know where he is now. The nearest uh, reference is in verse 12 where it says he was in some unnamed village. But he's heading back to Jerusalem. We know that. Um, somewhere in his travels, he, he comes upon the Pharisees who have been kind of hounding him, heckling him, persecuting him, trying to trap him in something he might say to discredit him. And uh, these Pharisees, though they don't like Jesus because he's exposing them as religious hypocrites, Uh, They are pretty fascinated about his miracles. And, you know, several times in the New Testament, it tells us that Jews seek for signs. Man, they wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see a miracle, you know, do something cool. And so they were after Jesus and they always wanted to see signs. But for the most part, even though Jesus gave them plenty of miracles to observe and signs to observe, they still were not believing and uh, and so Jesus, they also noticed in his travels as he taught, he often mentioned the kingdom and taught about the kingdom. Now, we don't know why they asked this question. It could have been legitimate curiosity. So what do you believe about the kingdom? Or it could be they're trying to trap him in a state. And because one of the words that is used here has a kind of a, a relative word that is used to trap somebody insidiously to stalk them, spy on them, to somehow entrap them. Um, It is the word observed, and we'll get into it in a minute. But Jesus mentions the kingdom, uh, or the kingdom is mentioned some 40 times in Luke's gospel alone, and this brings us to our text this morning. If you look at verse 20 of Luke 17, we read this. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said to them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Now, will they say, look here, it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, this text may seem small and innocuous, but believe me, wars have been waged over this text. Entire theological systems have been built on this text. Of course, which you should never do that. You always build your system off of everything the scriptures say. But some have put the foundation of their text on this one passage alone. And, you know, it would be fun to look at all the different end times views and the pros and cons and and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it, we just don't have the time. We're going to look at this text this week and next. We are going to get into it again when we get back into chapter 17. But um, And we look at uh, what Jesus is going to say further and again in verse 21. So it's going to be coming up. Uh, but right now, um, I just want to tell, kind of set the stage. I'm going to give you a lot of background information so we can begin to s- discuss this kingdom subject. The first is, what do you believe about the end times? And your view of the end times either came to usually in one of two ways. One, you were, somebody told you and you said, okay, you know, you read it in a book, you heard some preacher say it. And so it was like, okay. The other way is you studied the Bible. You have a certain method of studying the Bible and the way you interpret the Bible drove you to your conclusions about what you believe about end times. I tell you this because even though it's very fun to talk about all the systems, the, 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 the axe must be laid at the root of the tree. And that is, how do you interpret the Bible? How do you interpret the Bible? You see, if you come to the Bible interpreting it one way and I come interpreting it another way, we're never going to come to agreement about the details, right? Because our way of interpreting the Bible drives us to our conclusions. So to wrangle about the conclusions is pretty futile. I tell you this because a lot of times um, when you're talking, you may say, well, I believe, well I'm uh, such and such a camp. And it's like, okay. And then you wonder, so do you believe that because somebody told you or did you actually study the Bible? Well, I've studied the Bible. So what, how do you interpret the Bible? And then you discover, oh, I interpret the Bible different. So that's why you end up at point Y and I did Z. We are premillennial here at Calvary Bible Church, and that is our teaching position. And what does that mean? That is a kind of a big word. Pre means before. Millennium uh, means a thousand. Before the thousand year reign. We believe Jesus is actually going to come back to earth, and he's going to actually set up a earthly kingdom, which will last 1,000 years. After that, he will continue to reign on into eternity. And uh, we believe that because if you take the Bible and you just read it literally and consistently, you will come up with that interpretation. This is not to say that those who are premillennial don't see figures of speech, but uh, the other systems have presuppositions where they believe scriptures have been changed or prophecies should be tr- interpreted different than the rest of the Bible. We believe that the interpretation is what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. And if the original audience couldn't understand it, then it's not the interpretation. We don't believe that the Bible has been transformed by the Christ event, etc., etc. So I'm just going to tell you our view. And uh, when you get to heaven, everybody's going to have our view anyways. And so you don't need to worry about it. 
No, the good thing is this. Even if you, you have three individuals who have radically different views, you can all know the Lord. You can all be godly. You can all serve in the church. You can all share the gospel with the lost and get to heaven. And so uh, it's nothing to be, you know, stabbing people over. But the kingdom of God is this gigantic subject. Uh, it is huge. I'll just give you one example. In my office, I have a three-volume work by George W. Peters. He spent his whole life studying one aspect of the kingdom's 2,150 pages, large pages of fine print on one subject, a part of one subject. It's huge. And so I tell you that because, you know, when you start talking about this, I kind of feel like, you know, here's the thimble and here's the elephant. Let's stick her in there. Okay. Um, it's a little difficult to get it all in. But I want to start by first just talking about what do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? We'll start out with a definition so that we know what we're talking about and then we'll move from there. What do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? When you look in the scriptures, you find out that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God, the kingdom of David, just plain the kingdom. And so those are some different synonyms that you encounter. It is a theme that runs all the way through both the Old and New Testament. Now, in order to have a kingdom, you need three things. If you need three things, you need one, a king. It's pretty obvious. Um, in this case, it would be Jesus. Two, you need subjects. And of course, that would be believers. Three, you need a realm or a sphere, some area where the king rules the subjects. When you have those three elements, you can have a kingdom. Graham's Goldsworthy in his book on uh, the gospel and the kingdom said that uh, the kingdom always involves, and here's a little quick, easy way to do it, God's people, God's place, and God's rule. If you want a shorter uh, way to think about it, Alva J. McLean in his classic work, The Greatness of the Kingdom, said the essential elements of the kingdom are ruler, realm, and rulership. There you got three R's if uh, you want that. But think of the kingdom as wherever the king is ruling his subjects. Wherever the king is present, wherever he's ruling his subjects, you got yourself the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is, uh, we are told, not of this world, and that it's got a different king, it's got different laws, it's got a different purpose, and so it's not like any of the kingdoms that men establish. Now, when you talk about rule, then you have three other different things you want to talk about. And that is there are three different ways God rules. One is what is called God's universal rule. And this is that God has always and will always be ruling all of his creation. We know this from just tons of texts. I'm just going to give you two. Psalm 22:28, which says, for the kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over the nations. Notice God is always ruling over all the nation. He has a universal total, total rule over all the nations. Psalm 103.19 says, For the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. So many texts affirm God has a universal, comprehensive, always continuing rule. That would be his universal kingdom or universal rule over all creation. Secondly, there is a spiritual reign of God and Christ in the lives of believers. Um, this is true in both the Old and the New Testament because believers believe in God. 
They, they submit to God. God is their king. They do what God says. Um, and when the government says, you know, you can't do what God says, then they say, sorry, um, we have to obey our king, our ultimate king, rather than the earthly king, that our ultimate king, God or Christ, has priority. We see this, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, where Paul is preaching at Pentecost. He says, let, let, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Christ Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has made him Lord, the curios, master, king, sovereign. Um, God has made him the sovereign. And, of course, they needed to repent and believe in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10.9, Mike quoted it earlier, that we need to confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. In Revelation chapter 14, or 17, verse 14, John, speaking of the wicked, says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And so when we talk about confessing Jesus is Lord, we aren't just agreeing that he is the Lord. We are admitting we are his subjects. We are placing ourselves under his sovereign rule of our life. You remember what happened in the Old Testament? To give you an Old Testament example, Nebuchadnezzar brings all the nobles and all the prefects and all the governors of all the provinces of the entire Babylonian realm and brings them all to worship the statue. Then he brings out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, hey, you, when you hear the music, you bow down. So everybody bows down except these three guys. They're the only people other than Nebuchadnezzar who are standing. And he gets obviously a little irritated. Has the furnace heated seven times hotter. And they just said, well, we're not going to do it. Why? Because they had a bigger king. The ultimate king. The Lord God that they served. And they couldn't disobey that king. And so into the furnace they went. And then they got to see the king in the furnace. But see, God wasn't there physically, but they were still being ruled by him. You see the same thing in Acts, right? After Jesus has ascended into heaven and uh, and they're filling Jerusalem with the gospel, they get him and say, you stop preaching this Jesus. And they say, sorry, we're not stopping. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus is our king and he told us to preach the gospel, to keep preaching the gospel. And so we're not stopping. I'm sorry, it's irritating you, but you need to repent. Basically. And so they submitted to their king. So we have this spiritual rule, rule of God where he is always ruling men. Um, Christ is the Lord of us all right now. Jesus is our king if you know him and you submit to him. So he's, though not physically present, he's ruling your life. Third, there is a physical reign of Christ over all the earth from Jerusalem, which is called his, and here's the big word, mediatorial reign. I don't know who thinks of these words, but that's probably not a word you used in your vocabulary recently. Jesus is physically present in his glorified body on this earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The Moody Handbook of Theology says, quote, the mediatorial kingdom. This is a the rule of God through a divinely chosen representative who not only speaks and acts for God, but also represents the people before God. 
B, a rule which has special reference to the earth. And C, having as its mediatorial ruler one who is always a member of the human race. Thus, God dispensed his will on earth through divinely appointed mediators, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and others. But these mediators all anticipated the final mediator, Messiah, who had come to rule the earth at the end of the age. Gabriel promised Mary concerning her son, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke 1, 32 the 33 this is the promised future kingdom over which the messiah will rule end quote in first chronicles chapter 17 the davidic covenant is stated ezra gives us a a a, a repeat of it from it's also in second uh, samuel 7 but in verses 11 and 12 of first chronicles 17 david says uh, speaking on God's behalf, writes down, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house, me a house and I will establish his throne forever. He's looking forward to the time when Christ would come, would be a descendant, a son, that is somebody in the line of David and he would have a throne established, David's throne, David's throne was in Jerusalem and he would rule forever. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 33 verse 15 speaks of the coming of the Messiah and says in those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. So he comes to earth to do that. The prophet Zechariah talks about the Messiah all the time all the way through um, his his book. And he speaks of Christ as returning to the Mount of Olives to, uh, at his second coming to establish his kingdom. Do you remember what happened in the ascension in Acts chapter 1? The disciples were there. They had met with Jesus. And, and then all of a sudden Jesus ascends right there. They can see him in his glorified body, visibly ascends up into the air into the clouds. And they're standing there with their jaws open. And that's when the angels appear and say, uh, what are you guys doing? And they say, we're not used to this. I know it's common for you. We've never seen it happen. So we're staring. And then you remember what the angel says? The angel says, this Jesus will come in just the same way as you have seen him go. So just as he was in his glorified body, he left the Mount of Olives and he ascended up in the air to the clouds. So he's going to come from the clouds through the air and get back to the Mount of Olives. You say, Jack, are you sure? I am absolutely sure. Now, how do you know that? Because this is what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. I'm just going to read a, a few parts of this section. Listen, this is right at, after the tribulation, right at the end of the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. Then the Lord will go forth to fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Ah. Huh. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. And then he concludes in verse nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So Jesus will return 
in his glorified body to the Mount of Olives, from the clouds, through the air, to earth, just like it says. We know that. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. This Revelation 20 is a key text and that it tells us what happens right after that. In Revelation chapter 19, you have the second coming of Christ in the latter half of the chapter foretold. So Jesus has just come back in glory at the end of 19. Now at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20, we are told what happens right after Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom. John writes... Verse 1, Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Here we have six references to a thousand years. Three references to a thousand years having the same quality and essence as a thousand years. And three references to the thousand years, a specific thousand years. And though some say, well, this doesn't mean a thousand years. It makes perfectly good sense to take it literally. And the rule is this. If the literal meaning makes sense, then seek no other sense. And it makes perfectly good sense. And again, it would be a whole sermon to explain why that is. But you'll have to just take my word for it for now. Yet even without Revelation 20, let's just say that, you know, Revelation 20 fell out of the Bible. And we didn't know that Revelation 20, what it said. How would we know that Jesus would actually come back? How do we know that he doesn't just come back to earth and set up the eternal state? And how do we know that he sets up actually a kingdom on earth and he rules for a long time? Well, we just read multiple texts, which says he does. I'm going to give you another one. This one here is very explicit because see what happens is, is when he comes back, there's a difference between the eternal state and his rule. Though Jesus at his second coming sets up a kingdom which lasts forever, his mediatorial reign only lasts a thousand years. Well, how do we know that if we don't have revelation? Well, let me just give you one text. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 20 through 23. And listen to what uh, Isaiah writes of the Messiah. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. 
For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain, nor bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Notice. Are we talking about the eternal state? No. Why? Because people are dying. People are getting married. People are having children. That doesn't happen in the eternal state. As a matter of fact, men begin to live a long time in Jesus' kingdom. They're like before the days of Noah. You remember how Methuselah lived almost what? A thousand years? Yeah. And so when someone dies, I go, oh man, did you hear about so-and-so dying? Yeah, he, he was like, what, 130? That's a shame. It's such a bummer when people die so young. Why do the, the young die? And most people are living lives like trees. Long time, like those big redwoods or cedars. And so we have the universal reign of God over all creation. We have the spiritual reign of God over all believers. He's not present, but he's still ruling them. And then we have the mediatorial reign of God on earth through Christ for a thousand years. Now, if this is confusing, just hang on if you keep coming. And uh, we'll get the big picture eventually. But having said that, I just want to point out uh, from our text, one good question and three qualities of the kingdom so you can understand it, so you can anticipate it, so you can be excited about it coming and have hope for the future. No matter how bad the earth gets, things are going to be good for Christians. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but it's going to get way better. This morning, we're just going to look at the question, the first question and the first quality, and then we'll save the next two for next week. So first, a good question to ask. Look at verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. You know, we don't know why they were interested in this. It doesn't say, but they asked the question regardless of their motive. It's a good question, right? I mean, don't you want to know? I want to know. I want to know when the kingdom's coming. Now, if you want to come and tell me when it's coming, I'll know that you don't know. We can know generally by looking at the times and seeing things, but we don't know exactly when it's going to come. But this is something Christians have always been interested, even the disciples. If you look over at Luke, go turn back to Luke and look at Luke chapter 19, verse 11. This is just a little bit later, right after Zacchaeus is converted. And we have a, a parable about um, using money. But in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 11, um, this parable starts out. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Do you see how as they near Jerusalem, they go, this is it. Jesus has been teaching us about the kingdom and he's going to do it. He's going to beat up Rome. He's going to exalt Jerusalem. The Jews are going to be rescued. This is going to be incredible. Look over again at Luke 21, verse 7. Luke 21, verse 7. The disciples were admiring the temple. Look at that. Look at that incredible architecture. It is so incredible. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, not one stone's going to be left upon another. All's going to be thrown down. Really? I mean, it took 46 years to build that temple. It's all going to be thrown down. And we know that happened in 70 AD with Titus. 
And then in verse 7 of Luke 21, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he goes on, the parallel text in Matthew 24, verse 3 says, And they ask, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that's what is explained in Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. But even after Jesus' resurrection, they're still thinking, they're still hardcore premillennialists. They can't wait for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. And so Jesus died. He's been resurrected from the dead. I mean, he's about ready to ascend up into the clouds. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, Lord, is it at this time? You're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know the ascension is going to take place. They're on the high ground with the Mount of Olives a little bit higher in Jerusalem and going, okay, man, we're ready. Let's see the fireworks. And Jesus didn't say, fools. Don't you know that the whole earthly kingdom thing is only metaphorical of a spiritual reign? Don't you know that I'm not going to come, actually literally come back to earth, even though after I ascend here, the angel's going to tell you that it's not going to happen? I'm not going to rule and reign over Israel. I'm not going to defeat the Gentile powers like Daniel prophesied. All that spiritual of something. No, he didn't say that because he didn't believe it. He knew he would come back to earth. He knew it was predicted by the prophets and it's going to happen. We're familiar with Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7, turn there, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is, you know, one of the famous Christmas texts, right? We usually quote the first part of uh, 6 and uh, we kind of leave off 7 and we don't even do the preceding context. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, But in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we're told about this child who would be born, the Christmas child, the Christ. And a lot of times we focus on the fact that he would be born, but we don't look at the other part. And so let's look at the other part in addition to the fact that he will be born. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What happened is, is the Jews knew the Messiah was coming back. They knew he was going to establish his kingdom. They knew the headquarters would be in Jerusalem. It's we've told that over and over again. But what they didn't understand is this first coming, second coming thing. They didn't understand Jesus had to come a first time to die on the cross for the sins of the world and then come a second time in glory and judgment. They did not understand that. We describe it like sights in a gun. If you ever look through a rifle, you'll see in the front sight and the rear sight. And when you stare through them, they look really close together. But they're not. There's a distance between them. And it's not until you turn the gun sideways that you see, oh, there's there's a distance in between them. Well, that's how this text here is, isn't it? For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given to us. That happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. Then we have, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That's still to happen. That hasn't happened yet. So we have this distance between these prophecies, and that's why the Jews were like, I just, we can't figure this out. I mean, we know the Messiah is going to come. We know he's going to conquer the Gentiles. We know that that's what it says in the prophets over and over again. And look at you, you're just a carpenter. Granted, you could do miracles, but come on, let's whoop up on Rome. 
Come on, we know since we're the leaders of Israel, you're going to exalt us and you just insult us. You couldn't be the Messiah. And so they're just blind to this. They have the scriptures in their head, but they don't see the distance between the first and the second coming. That hasn't computed with them. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. This is another text, and and there are so many great ones to look at, but this is another great text. Isaiah 11, again, about the Messiah's rule on earth. And we read this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and the branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness, the belt around his waist and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the the cow and the bear will graze their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an, an ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand into the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. People are living, people are having kids and the kids are playing with poisonous snakes. It's like, okay, now don't hurt that cobra, honey. No, 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 no. Don't hit him in the head with the stick. See, there is the, the, the curse is partially lifted during the thousand year reign of Christ. And so men begin to live longer and, and animals become more docile. And the king is on the earth. He's ruling his creation from the earth. Turn over to Daniel chapter 2. You don't know where Daniel is. Is you know, minor prophets back a little bit. Major prophets forward a little bit. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. This is, uh, uh, we're going to look at verses 44 and 45 of Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue. He can't figure out what it means. He asked Daniel. Daniel knows how to interpret it. There is a head of gold which represents the kingdom of Babylon. The chest and arms of silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly and thighs of bronze representing Greece. The legs and legs of iron representing Rome. You think, how do you know this? Because it says it in the book. Um, The feet with the ten toes have iron and clay, which are kind of brittle, represent these ten kings in the last days, right before the, the final kingdom is established. The final kingdom is described as a stone that is cut out, not with the hands of men, and it, it, it crushes the whole statue, and it itself remains forever. And this is what we read, Daniel 2:44. In the days those kings of the those kings, the God of, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron and bronze and the clay and silver and gold, with the uh, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy 
There's going to be a kingdom that no man makes. God does a divine kingdom. That is the mediatorial reign of Christ, which begins with a thousand year earthly reign, then followed by the eternal state and the recreation of the heavens and earth and all that stuff. Turn over to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel 7. Here Daniel's having a vision. And uh, 7 verse 13. He's having a vision of the future, uh, the future kingdom. And uh, tells us what he saw. I kept looking in the night vision. Verse 13. And behold with the clouds of heaven. One like the son of man was coming. Imagine that. And he came up to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now we could spend all morning reading texts about the kingdom and never finish. Just one after another. There's truckloads of them in the Bible. And so the the Pharisees are interested in this. Believers have always been interested in this because there's so many references in the Bible. And so they say, so when's it going to happen? And the lesson to learn here is we need to be asking that question. Do you ask that question? Do you anticipate the kingdom? Are you looking for the kingdom to come? You know, when you're sharing the gospel, and I hope you are sharing the gospel, I know we probably all need to do a little bit more, but when you're sharing with people and uh, you're talking with them, have you ever heard this one? Listen, uh, you know, if there is a God and he's so holy and just and loving, then why is there so much evil in the world? Ever heard that one? Yeah, yeah. I think all, I think people were born with that etched into their memory. All you got to say is, well, the day is quickly approaching when God will send judgments on the earth because of the wickedness of men. The man of sin, the Antichrist, will rise to power. He will deceive, persecute, and establish himself as the Messiah. Then Christ, robed in vengeance, will come forth with great glory, and he will slay the wicked instantaneously. And so you better repent. Because he is going to put an end to all evil. And until you repent, you're part of it. You're part of it. That is the answer. And we should all be asking with the Pharisees and with the disciples, you know, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Paul in in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says we need to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Is that what you do? Do you look forward to, do you anticipate the great coming of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus? Some of the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote before being executed were these in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is the last book and the last chapter and the last portion. Then he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to all, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. The question is this. Do you love the appearing of Jesus? Does that just make you go, oh yeah. Or does it make you kind of scared? I mean, you're sitting there thinking, I don't want that to happen. Then you need to get right with the Lord. Because Christians love Jesus' appearing. They can't wait to be 
glorified. They can't wait to be released from their body of death. They can't wait to be with Christ. They can't wait to rule and reign with him. They can't wait for his kingdom. They want it to happen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're told to pray by Jesus. Do you pray that? Yeah, it's like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I don't have to go to work on Monday. (laughs) Right now would be good. You know, we're ready. But if that thoughts scare you, if those thoughts concern you, that is a telltale sign. One, your life isn't right with the Lord. You might be saved, but you're living in sin. But most likely it indicates you don't know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, you need to repent of your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know he died in the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day. You need to be ready. You'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. The moment you believe, you'll become a kingdom saint and you will rule and reign with Christ forever. Secondly, no signs to be observed. This is the first quality we see about the kingdom. We've had the good question. No signs to be observed. Look at the middle of verse 20. He answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Now just stop there. This is just one of those. Are you kidding me? Text. Doesn't uh, Jesus go on in the rest of 17 to describe the signs of his coming? Well, yes. Doesn't he explain even more signs of his coming in Chapter 21, but yes. So then why is he saying there's no signs? And this is the text that has just the battleground. Keep in mind, the Jews didn't understand the first and second coming. That did not enter their mind. They were totally blind to that. So, Here you have some Jews, and in their mind, they're thinking about all the scriptures, some of them we just read, about signs in the heaven and on the earth and the sun being turned to dark and the overthrow of the Gentile powers. They're they're thinking this in their head. They're looking at Jesus. He doesn't look anything like that. He doesn't look anything like the Messiah that they have in their mind from all the prophecies that speak of his second coming. And so they can't figure out what is your problem. You couldn't be the Messiah. You just, you're doing miracles. It's very impressive, but you couldn't be the guy. They, They just can't figure it out. And so they're having problems. Where do they get the idea that there would be these Gentile powers? Well, because a lot of texts talk about it. Like Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. Um, it says, It will come about after this. This is the end of the tribulation. I will pour out my spirit on mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered for from Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape and as the Lord has said even among the survivors whom the Lord calls I mean there's some things even in the New Testament Jesus is teaching and in all of that discourse Matthew 24 verses 29 through 30 but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the sky the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory so that's what they're looking for 
Jesus taught exactly what they are anticipating, but now he says there's no signs. What is going on here? It's a very simple answer. They're looking for the kingdom. The king, subjects, and wherever he's ruling over them. The kingdom is right in front of their face. His subjects are right in front of their face. And so when's the kingdom? And so, you know, in the Jesus vernacular, listen, pals, (laughs) I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. These are my subjects, my followers. Come on over. You don't need any signs to be observed right now. In this, right now, I'm here. I'm the king that you're looking for. I'm the Messiah you're looking for. Believe in me. Enter the kingdom. You don't need any... That's going to happen later, my second coming. Come in now. That's all he's saying. And we'll see that. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, he goes on to say. Because right now, it's in front of your face. They were so closely looking for the kingdom of God to come with all the second coming prophecies, they couldn't understand how Jesus could be the Messiah and King. J. Vernon McGee commenting on this text, and I'll refrain from the accent, but it's pretty fun. Though he is dead, he still speaks. Jesus speaks of the fact that the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. To whom is he talking? He is answering the Pharisees who are demanding that he tell them when the kingdom of God come. He is not saying that the kingdom of God is inside the hearts of these godless and hostile Pharisees. Rather, the kingdom of God was in their midst in the person of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was right then standing among them, end quote. And in rejecting Christ, they were rejecting the king and his kingdom and his subjects. And so I think the point here we need to ask ourselves is, are we doing the same thing? Remember when Jesus told the parable of the wicked vine growers? That parable how the owner hired some people to take care of his vineyard. Those people represented the religious leaders and how they abused uh, his vineyard. And so he came and he sent some servants, which represented the prophets, to check up on them, to give an account. And they beat up, um, cast out of the vineyard those prophets. He sent more. They killed them. Finally, he said, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son because surely they'll respect my son, which is his son, Jesus. So Jesus is sent. And when the religious leaders see him, they kill him. And then Jesus says in the parable to these religious leaders who hate him, and they, they have no idea what's going on in the parable. They're, they're, he's going to just hit them blindside. And he says, so what should happen to those wicked vine growers? And they say, he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. And then Jesus looks at them. And says, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And then they understood. He spoke the parable against them. And so, since Pentecost, the gospel has primarily gone out to Gentiles. But there will be a time when God will turn his attention to the Jews during that tribulation period. And be assured, he's coming again. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and giving us glimpses into the future so we know what to expect, so we know what's on the horizon, so we can have hope, so we can eagerly anticipate the coming of our Savior and God, Christ Jesus. Father, we long to be free from our sin. We long to be away from this wretched, sin-cursed earth. We long to see righteousness established. And so, Father, we look with anticipation to your coming. Father, we pray that it would motivate us to have holy lives for everyone who has that hope fixed on him, purifies themselves, that it would also motivate us to share the gospel, to speak the truth, to tell people how they can enter into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And Father, if there's people here who don't know you today, I'm sure there is. May they right now give their life to Jesus. May they confess their sins. May they cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. I repent. I believe that Jesus died for me, that he he was buried and rose again the third day, and that he's coming back in glory. Father, transform lives as only you can do. We trust you for that and know that you will in your good time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.